William Golding's 1964 novel, The Spire, is a story of obsession. Set in the Middle Ages, the novel centers on the construction of a 404-foot spire for the Salisbury Cathedral in England. Dean Jocelyn, the dean of the cathedral and main character of the book, becomes solely demonically focused upon the construction of this spire, even though the foundations of the cathedral cannot support it. Beyond all good advice, breaking friendships, relationships, neglecting his prayer, Dean Jocelyn obsesses over, pushes for this folly of a tower. Ostensibly for God, the construction of the spire becomes this symbol in the book of Jocelyn's own aspirations, his own vanity. I told the parish council earlier this week that I thought the novel concluded with the spire falling on Dean Jocelyn, but that's not actually true. It's a little too on the nose. That's why I'm not a novelist. In Golding's story, the poor Dean only dies from the tuberculosis, the symptoms of which he has ignored while pursuing this grand vision. Stories like the spire, for all its over-the-top sordidness, and the book is sordid, have something to remind us of in seasons like this. We're in the middle of this thanks be to God campaign. And our focus this morning is on the mission and the ministry of the church. Today, there's an element of celebrating the ministry that has already taken place among us and also looking forward to imagining the future. What could come to fruition out of this season of sacrificial generosity? In such a moment, Golding's story can act as this helpful, sobering counterpoint, a bracing reminder of the ways that the most holy-seeming aspirations can so easily become conflated, drawn into our own vanity. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book Life Together, wrote, God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. There's a danger to what we call vision casting, a risk that we make our own wishes, our own sense of what should happen, the same thing as what God is surely doing. But the truth is that God's ways are always above our own, so much deeper, working so much more patiently than we might realize. There's a risk too as we celebrate wins and successes, good fruit, as our own. Signs of our own righteousness, our own good taste, and slip into pride and grandiosity. The truth is that the kingdom of God and our participation in it is always a gift, always a grace. Our acts always testify to God's goodness and generosity above our own. Yet for all that, there is clearly a place for vision, for hopes, for intention regarding the future. As image bearers of God, we have been given agency, creativity, desire for the future. The King James translation of Proverbs 29, 18, where there is no vision, the people perish, that's been overturned by much scholarly consensus. But the rendering captures something true. There's a true principle there. And said in the context of God's run-on sentence of lavish grace that we talked about two weeks ago, and guided by a sense that we must relinquish ourselves before God's will. Here I am, as we focused on last week. I think there is an invitation for us as God's people 
to imagine, to dream, to discern together what faithfulness and fruitfulness in our lives, in our shared life, might look like. With humility, but also with hope, expectation, and intention. As Wayne Gretzky once said, and for those of you counting as home, that's the second reference in a row about a hockey player. That's how you know I'm Canadian. And it was quoted by Michael Scott in the office, but he said, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. So I'd like to take something of a shot this morning and articulate humbly with some of my hopes and my dreams related to this season in our church life and what it might be that God could yet do among us in the years ahead. And I'd like to do so primarily through our text this morning from 3 John, and framing our time around two headings, who we are to be and what we are to do. Who we are to be and what we are to do. Before I jump in, two quick caveats. I grew up at a church where it was like common, not uncommon in style, for the preacher to like say a slogan and then be like, turn to your neighbor and share that with them or something like that. And it could be something that was like folksy, like, don't you look good this morning or something like that. Or it could be something like, God loves you. And then you're like staring into the eyes of a stranger and you're like, this is awkward. Um, that's not really our style. But if it was, if it was our style, and if I were to ask you to say a slogan this morning to your neighbor, it would be something like this. Peter doesn't know what is going to happen. Peter does not have a crystal ball. I take really seriously my role as the rector of this community and really seriously what it means to exercise spiritual leadership here. But I do not have a monopoly on listening to the Holy Spirit in our midst. I don't have the only, per I'm not the only person who has an ear to what the Lord is doing. So what I share is in some way like very preempted, very circumscribed by that reality. Like I am fallible. And so like, look at your neighbor and be like, Peter could be wrong or something like that. And you're like, you're like we know, we know. Um, so that's the first caveat. The second caveat is, do you remember like over 20 years ago, there was that really famous Saturday Night Live skit, the like more cowbell skit? Well, that's like the line that everyone remembers, but there was an even funnier line, I think more subtly funny, where the record producer encourages the band Blue Oyster Cult there. He's like, I really want you to explore the studio space around here. And it becomes this kind of idea of like, oh, you just explore your creativity and you're kind of like just testing things out be experimental. I'm gonna share some things that might freak you out today. They've kind of freaked me out. I'm gonna share some things that you're like, well, wait, how would that work together with this other idea over here? And the answer is, I don't know. We're exploring the studio space this morning, people, okay? We're gonna kind of let it. And that also kind of relates to, the sermon's a little shaggier, maybe over long than I, I anticipated, so just bear with me. But okay, caveats, preamble aside, who are we to be? Our reading this morning from 3 John uh, on, the, on the bulletin included the first eight verses of the book. Maya actually read the whole book. You just heard a, a, whole, a whole passage of scripture, a whole book of the Bible read to you. It's the shortest book in the New Testament, but one of 66 down, you can cross it off. But the first of these verses in our reading are just simply greeting, right? John the elder is writing to his friend Gaius, his co-leader among the early community of Jesus followers. And I think like what emerges for us here is this picture of warm affection that John has for Gaius. Twice he calls him dear friend or beloved. 
And he shares that he like prays for him for his good health and prosperity. And then he commends Gaius for his faithfulness. He like celebrates his win. All of that is pretty standard stuff. It's kind of general opening pleasantries. But I think it suggests for us how this relationship and indeed how the, the life of the entire church at this time was marked by this warmth, by a depth of affection, by this love and care. John is for Gaius. He desires his well-being. He's lifting him up to the Lord to this end. Later on, he refers to the community as his children. And this is a constant theme in the letters of John in the New Testament. Biblical scholar Judith Lee has emphasized how love is the bond of unity that John describes, connecting the community among its members and with God. This is something I think that we can easily lose sight of. Perhaps it's just assumed, so it doesn't need to be said, we think. But the local church as an expression of the body of Christ, as a microcosm of the people of God, living out his purposes and plans, is to be a people of affection, of warmth and love and care, where the well-being of one another in a very human way is celebrated, is sought after. There's something like everyday and basic about this. And there are things that the church must do and engage in to be faithful. We'll talk about some of those things shortly. But at baseline, there is this simple reality that we are to be a people of love. There are vanishingly few places in our world where this posture of affection and care are present. Most of the places we inhabit throughout the week at best treat us as producers or consumers as people to be sold something, or as people who must perform a certain function in order to receive or belong. Even worse, we are all aware of contexts where exploitation and abuse is the order of the day. And what John's words indicate here is that the church is to be radically different as a community, is to be a people to which we can entrust ourselves one to another and expect that we will be received and loved as John receives and loves Gaius here. This is why, like, exploitive behavior and abuse, some of which you have suffered in the church, is so demonic. Because it should not be here above all other places. And when I think about what God is doing at Church of the Cross, what I see him doing among us, is I see him desiring to make us a people marked by this kind of affection, this kind of care for one another, bound together in this kind of love. Not perfectly, we fall short, we will always fall short. But when I see, for example, the number of children in our midst, that communicates to me that God is making us to be a community where we are able to entrust ourselves, able to entrust our children one to another. That is a beautiful, a high and holy and sacred thing. Trusting that we will care for and nurture one another, our children, in the posture we read about John expressing, prayerfully desiring the flourishing, the blessing of one another. That's not the only evidence I see. I could have talked about being known and named in neighborhood groups or other settings, but that is a big one. 
And as we talk about the campaign, as we talk about what could be here in this building, most of what we're talking about is making this place a space that is hospitable for the hundred children that we have regularly here. What does it mean that the building itself would be a place of security and safety, a place that would communicate to children that they are part of the church, that they belong? That, it seems to me, is part of what we are called to do with this space, called to be as a community. Now, two clarifications on this idea that we are to be a community of love. Notice in verse 5 how John commends Gaius for the hospitality, the generosity he has shown to brothers and sisters, even though they are strangers. That's an interesting juxtaposition. Brothers and sisters, but also strangers. What John is praising Gaius for here is that he has extended this affection that they share, the love that they share, to those whom he does not know. The word stranger there is xenos, the word from which we get the term xenophobia. They have been welcomed by you, John is saying, even though they are foreign, even though they are alien to you. The church is called to be this community of warm affection, of love and care, but that sphere of care and well-wishing is not restricted to people who are like us, to people whom we already know. The church is so fully to be this kind of people marked by this love that others, that strangers and aliens are blessed. Even strangers in Christ are regarded as sisters and brothers across whatever divisions make us alien to one another. Your station of life, your ethnic background, your socioeconomic status. In Christ, we're bound together in this affection, in this love. George Yancey, a sociologist, in his book Beyond Racial Gridlock, suggests that the church is to testify that God is not too small, that he could not overcome racial hostility or those things that estrange us in the world. In our common life, we are to reveal that God is greater than those powers, those things that would divide us. I dream about our community increasing in this fashion using this space and property, yes, as a blessing for us, those of us who are already here, but also for those who are strangers to us. We see this happening in small ways, right? We rent the, church, the, the building to another church. The Diaspora Conference took place here last week, but it could be more. We are connected to churches that are using their buildings and property as a way of extending care to neighbors experiencing homelessness who have started legal immigration centers in their spaces, who've created community gardens and farms where East African immigrants can grow produce that is native to where they've come from, where congregations and churches worship in a multitude of languages. I've been doing neighborhood group visits, and some of you have chatted with me about your dreams of green space that other people could use, strangers to us, drawn in, receiving the blessing sharing in the warm affection. But this can also happen among us right here, right now. We can increase in this. Here's that quote in the Brothers Karamazov where it says, I love the idea of humanity, but I dislike human beings, right? And it's so easy in the abstract to be like, oh yeah, we should love strangers. But there are like people you don't know in the room. There are people that you could reach out and extend yourself to in love today. 
So often, communities that exhibit the kind of care and affection we see John and Gaius share, they're somewhat insular. They're so enjoying their mutual affection or they're somewhat protective of it that it can be difficult for others to get in, to be known. Yet the implication of our readings this morning are that you are so provided for, you are so safe in Jesus Christ, you are so protected in him that you could take the risk You can extend yourself. There is enough affection, enough love in God to go around. We're called to be a people bound together by love across lines of difference, to treat strangers as sisters and brothers, to be a place where others are enveloped in the affection and care that's evident among the people of God. Have you noticed how hard it is for us to get attention back after the passing of the peace? That's like warm mutual affection. But what might it mean to make that moment one where people on the periphery, people you don't yet know, are also greeted and drawn in, and they get a taste of that as well? That they don't stand on the sidelines and be like, that's a community that loves itself, but they have the experience of being drawn into it as well. This is the second thing, though. We don't do this on our own. We don't do this in our own power. There's that famous song by Brian Ferry from the the old Tom Cruise movie, Legend. Is your love strong enough? And the answer is no. Our love is not strong enough. Notice verse 1. John extends this opening greeting to his dear friend. He names him as the one whom I love in the truth. The love that John has for Gaius is in the truth. Well, what's the truth? Well, in the letters of John, the truth is always shorthand for what has been revealed in Jesus Christ. The truth of God's love. The truth of God's care. The truth of God's grace expressed in the person of Jesus. So in 1 John 4.16, John writes, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay our lives down for sisters and brothers and strangers, he might have added. Jesus' life and ministry are the pattern and context in which the love shared among his followers is expressed. It is God's prior and greater love embodied and exemplified in Jesus that is the atmosphere in which we love one another, in which we love strangers. This is the only reason we have for hope that we could be a people of love. My love is far too fragile far too inconsistent, far too weak. Therefore, it is essential that we be a people who are rooted in the love of God, who are rooted in the truth of Jesus, who receive the Holy Spirit, the spirit of love, the one through whom the love of God is poured into our hearts. This is essential for us to be the people God is calling us to be. I think this is where the cultivation, the the transformation of this building, of this property, as an expression of worship, to be a place conducive to worship is so very important. That this building might become a physical expression of our devotion to the God of love. And that it would be a place where we are growing, drawn into the love of God. Would this be a place of beauty, of rest and healing? Would we come on Sundays and inhabit a place reflective of the love of Jesus, drawing us into the life of God? I dream about this room being a place that is a temple unto the Lord of love, that expresses our devotion and that draws us near to him through beauty, through the physical structuring of this space. 
I dream about this room increasing as a space of encounter with the Holy Spirit in our worship at the table, in prayer together and alone, set apart. I dream about us growing as a community of contemplative practice, where those rhythms, those disciplines that root us in the love of God are engaged in, where we learn to do them together, where we lay hold of rhythms that connect us to the love of God and allow us to participate in that love together. Praying on Thursdays, the daily office, super small step, but there could be more. I dream about, could an order emerge among us of people sharing a common rule of life, rooting themselves in the love of God as an expression of who we are in Christ, who we are to be, a people of and in the love of God. There could be more. Each of our scripture readings this morning outside of 3 John emphasize for us the abundance of God. Bread without price, the feeding of the 5,000, the Lord himself is our keeper. Images of God's abundance, expressions of his love. In that abundant love, we are called to be a people of love, receiving and rooted in the love that God has shown us to Jesus, sharing it among one another, extending it to strangers. Yet the abundance of God's love is such that it also compels us to do the work of love. This brings us to our second heading, what are we to do? We talked about who we're to be, what are we to do? In verse 4 of 3 John, the phrase walking in the truth is used. As we've seen, this word truth in John's letter is connected to the reality of what God has done in Jesus. His taking on human flesh, his atoning death upon the cross, his victory over death. For John, this is the truth. And his desire is that the community of Jesus' followers, the church, walk in it. Walking is, of course, inherently embodied language, right? You don't think into walking. You walk. It's physical. It's material. The people of God are called to receive this truth about Jesus, about what God is doing in history, and then put it into practice. One of the phrases that's come to mind as I've dreamt and thought about this space and who we might become is this phrase, the church as a place of integration. The church as a place where we live, come to live, lives of greater integrity, greater coherence around the truth. So much of life is disintegrated. Leah Labresco-Sargent, who writes a newsletter called Other Feminisms, This week had one titled, The Internet is a Dysphoria Machine. And she was specifically writing about the ways women's image of themselves is so easily warped by what they see. But that's true for all of us. Perhaps uniquely particular in that way, but for all of us. By the time Sunday rolls around, I need to be reminded of the truth. I need to be reminded of who I am in Christ, what is most real, And I need help to live into that reality. This, I think, is what we're to do in this place, to put into practice in our shared life, in our various dispersed vocations, the truth of the gospel. We are to teach our children how to do this, not simply to give assent to abstract principles, but to walk in this fashion. I dream about the ways we might more fully do this, commit ourselves to the instruction, the formation of one another, of our children as those who walk in the gospel. 
by creating resources, by providing space and time beyond Sunday for such formation among us. There could be more for all of us in this regard, I think. In this little book called The Celtic Way of Evangelism, a book that's informed my imagination for how the church, how we might be the church, the writer George Hunter identifies this middle tier of life questions. He's building on the work of Paul Hebert, a missiologist. And he describes these as not like first order questions about transcendent reality, like is there a God or something like that. And he also distinguishes them from like the most basic everyday questions, like how do I balance my checkbook or something? Like people don't even have checkbooks anymore, I know that. Um, But you get the idea. Somewhere in between there, these, these questions that we all carry. For example, what's gonna happen to me as I age? What happens if I get sick and I suffer? How do I pursue a relationship with integrity? How do I exercise more patience with my loved ones? How do I engage politically or spend money in a way that's consistent with my convictions? Hunter suggests these are questions of the near future, and it's where most of our anxiety lies. It's where we are most, find it most difficult to set our trust in Jesus. Over the years, some of our lunch and learns and various formational offerings have related to these kinds of questions on dying, on cross-cultural friendships, the church's teachings on marriage and sexuality and how to love our neighbors, our theology of series. I think about the ways we might grow as a community of equipping, empowering one another to walk in the truth, to our mutual joy like it, it is for John. Grappling with such questions, I dream about how we might produce resources that serve to equip us to walk in the truth. Catechism materials, songs, art. To be a community that generates artifacts of the kingdom for ourselves and for others. And the idea that we might do it for others relates to this second thing that we are called to do. Verse 8, in verse 8 of John, of 3 John, John describes himself, Gaius, and their community as those working together for the truth. He's specifically referring to the hospitality shown to these brothers and sisters who've gone out, as he says, for the sake of the name. Every indication is that these people were engaging in evangelism. They were proclaiming the gospel, persuading people to put their trust in Jesus. They were involved in mission. And what John's words in verse 8 suggest is that he sees himself and the community of followers who are not going, right, who are stationary in some way, as caught up in this same work, partners in this same work, working together with them for the truth. Our reading this morning, Old Testament reading, Isaiah 55 in verse 5, declares that the abundance of God is so great that the nations will be drawn to him through God's people, through the splendor that he endows his people with. The church is to be a community of the love of God, endowed with the love of God, is to walk in the truth, and through its life, people are to be drawn to the Lord. This is what we're to be about, what we're to do, to live together in such a way, to worship in such a way, to serve in such a way, to speak of Jesus in such a way that others, the nations, are drawn to the Lord. Now, what John is writing about in our text is material support. By their welcome, their tangible support, Gaius' community are co-laborers with these people who are physically going. That's a beautiful idea, if you think about it, related to, like, mission partnering. 
We have mission partners. John Rector, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, Hope Clinic, just around the way here. Tim Wong with InterVarsity and others. And we have become, through support, what John is saying, partners, co-laborers with them. And we at Church of the Cross have established a legacy of financial generosity through which we participate in mission, in blessing others. Over the years, there have been crises, and this community has responded. I think about Hurricane Harvey, to the needs of immigrants here among us and at the border. I just learned this week that since the beginning of 2018, $45,000 has been dispersed through our Good Neighbor Fund to help with the acute needs of those living around us. You have a, a legacy of financially stepping forward in the name of Jesus. Thanks be to God. But it could be more. And what I dream about, what I see in this campaign is an opportunity for us to continue that legacy, to expand upon our sense of being on mission with Jesus. Think about this space, this property being transformed to be a place in which people come and meet Jesus. Think about us becoming, I dream about us becoming less occasional in our responses, more driven by the needs and opportunities we see because we're physically rooted here listening to the Spirit, responding to the Spirit, and being like, this is what God has set before us to do. I think about this being a space from which we are sent out into the city for the sake of his name to tell others about Jesus. I think about more church plants. This is really important. The goal here is not to make Church of the Cross big and great, a 404-foot spire. I think that puts us in danger, puts into danger the life of mutual affection that God has for us. But the goal is that more people are drawn to Jesus and able to meet him. And one of the best ways we might accomplish that in the years to come is through planting other communities. Remember, Peter doesn't know what the future holds, but I dream about planting two churches in the coming years, in the north, in the east, or the west. I think that at least one such community should primarily be Spanish-speaking, reflective of who God has brought to Central Texas. That others might taste and see the goodness of the Lord. That others might be drawn in to the love that we have received. Beyond these grander dreams, though, I simply long for us to increase as a community in which people are meeting Jesus. This is like... I don't think I've ever shared this, but like one of the longings I have is that we would increase as a community that would see adult conversions. Like we've baptized a ton of kids and that is awesome and so joyful. I long to see people encounter Jesus in their later years of life and be transformed by him. Think about how faith building such a thing is. Think about how joyful such a possibility is. Think about how God honoring such work would be. And that ultimately is what this campaign and this moment in our life is about, the glory of God. This is what we are to be about and to work toward. Not to our own glory, like Dean Jocelyn in Golding's novel, but toward his. And out of all that I've shared, $1.3 million over the next three years or $1.5 million will not be sufficient to do all this. I know that. For the future, we must trust our God of abundance, who is able to take what we offer and multiply it for his good purposes. But what generosity now will do 
is set us on a trajectory where we can more fully dream together, where we can more openly listen together to the Spirit and respond to His promptings to be all, to do and to be all that the Lord is inviting us to. So with that possibility before us, let us individually, let us corporately continue in prayer and listening, asking how might we be invited to participate today? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.